Amen. Thank you so much, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to 1 Peter. Thank you. Chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 13 and following. Today has been an incredible day at Riverview Baptist Church. In the first service, we baptized a 60-year-old. In our second service, we baptized a fourth grader. And one of the things that's special about this church is the fact that as a family, we have an intergenerational body not united around music, not united around a personality or some other affinity that we might have, but I truly believe this church is united around Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful for that. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 13 and following. Uh, the book of First Peter, if you could sum up the theme of it, would be this. First Peter is a manual for aliens. The book of First Peter is a manual that God gives his people to understand that they are not of this world, but they're rather aliens and pilgrims. We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now, and basically what we're saying is if you're a follower of Jesus, if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, this world is not only not your home, but being an alien and a pilgrim means that you relate differently to the world. That the way that you relate to the world is not as a consumer that's here to get from the world around us, but that we're actually the people of God here to give something to the world. Our role is to be the people, the catalyst that God uses to pour his love and his message into a lost and dying world. And so the book of 1 Peter is Peter unpacking that identity and what that is and what that means and what it looks like to live like the people of God as aliens and pilgrims in a world that is not our home. Last week, we talked about how the orientation or the focus of a pilgrim is praise, it's declaration, it's worship. And so we talked about the reasons that we worship God. Today, Peter's going to turn his attention to talking about what it looks like to live like an alien. In fact, over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about five different marks of who we are as aliens and pilgrims. And under all five of those marks is as if Peter's saying this one kind of reality. He's saying, you and I are meant to be who we are. The presupposition, the assumption running under all five of these marks he's going to discuss in this chapter is you and I are called to be who we are. It was not infrequent in the Plumley household growing up for me as a teenager or a young man, for me to be leaving the house in the morning and for my mom or my dad to look at me before I left and say, you're a Plumley, act like it. Your mom or dad ever say that to you? Anybody have that say to you? The last name, this is who you are, this is our family, act like it. And of course, what my parents, they were saying is, this is our family, our family stands for these things. Make sure that when you walk out the door and you go to school or you go to your job, that your actions line up with your identity. What Peter's saying is, he's laid out who we are. This is who you are. You are an alien and a pilgrim. I want to show you what it means to act like it. I want to show you what it means to act like the people of God as aliens and pilgrims. Today, we're going to talk about three components, three characteristics of what it means to act like an alien and a pilgrim. With your Bibles open, your devices open, would you please stand to your feet as we honor the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verses 13 all the way through 21. 
1 Peter 1, 13 and following. Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Would you please pray with me? Father, what we are asking for right now is for something supernatural to happen. God, we are desirous, longing for you to speak to us. God, I've worked hard to try to understand this passage this week. I've tried to labor for simplicity to make it clear to your people, but I confess before my family and before you that, that unless you move, we, we can't understand this. We can't hear what you're trying to say to us. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes, would open our hearts, that you would take your truth and you would use it to expose lies and deception in us, that your spirit would displace our love for sin and unrighteousness, and it would grow a love for Jesus in these moments. We're asking for all of that in your power and in your strength. And Father, as you do that, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, but would you help us be doers? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. Be who you are. Number one, be who you are in your thinking. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter zeroes in on this idea of hope. And it's important to remember that hope was something Peter had talked about previously in verse 3. And in fact, in verse 3, Peter had described hope, not just in any kind of generic way, but he's actually said, if you're a Christian, you've been given a living hope. You've been given a hope that's alive. And the reason your hope is alive and living is because the one you're hoping in is alive. The hope that you have is in Jesus Christ. And because Jesus has died and risen again and is victoriously returning one day to fully realize the grace that you've been given, you have hope. And so when he talks about hope, he's not talking about a cross your fingers kind of hope. I hope this thing happens. When Peter talks about hope and setting our hope on Christ and what he's going to bring to us upon his return in the end, he's telling us that our hope is meant to be a confident expectation of victory. 
What it means is that you and I, as aliens and pilgrims, are to have a confident view of the world that says, I know in the end Christ is victorious. This is totally different than any other hope that we have in any other arena of our lives, okay? Some of you know where I'm going with this. This afternoon, I hope my Dallas Cowboys win. I got a, I got a fist pump back there. All right. May happen, may not. There's hundreds of factors that play into a team winning an athletic match, okay? Some of us hope for a certain outcome in the November election, right? Some of us are hoping that certain things happen or don't happen. Some of us are hoping in certain things economically. We want to see things happen with the housing market or our 401k. We're, we're hoping that certain things happen. But the reality is, in all those areas that I just listed, we are powerless to control the outcome. And if there's anything hurricanes remind us, is that we really are pretty insignificant and not able to really control anything in our lives. Yes, science can predict these things, but we can no more control that than the people could 2,000 years ago. The hope, however, that Peter calls us to is totally different because we're not hoping, wishing that it would happen. There's a longing and an expectation that's rooted in victory. It's already done. It would be like somebody calling me in their DeLorean, and telling me what the score is for the Cowboys game. I know what's going to happen. It's settled. And that's what Peter's saying. Our hope is settled and fixed. So here's a question for you and for me as we're processing hope. If that's what hope is, it's that thing I'm longing for, how do I know where my hope is resting? If Peter says my hope's to rest on Christ, how can I really tell if my hope's in Jesus? Let me give you a test, okay? Here's a litmus test. Whatever it is that keeps you from worry, that's where your hope really is found. The thing that keeps you from worry is really what you're hoping in. So in any given day throughout the week, there are things that happen to us that we didn't plan. Things don't go the way we hoped they would go. Relationships don't always work out the way we hoped they would People do things that are often received by us as hurtful or mean or, or difficult. And, and in those moments of worry or concern or anxiousness, there's something in us that goes, yeah, this is a problem, but I've still got this thing over here that makes that okay. Whatever this thing is over here within you that makes worry and anxiousness go away, that's where your hope really rests. So when I was a kid, I used to go to the circus um, gave me an incredible fear of clowns, which has proven to be well-founded, given <laughs> recent events, I might add. <laughs> if you're not afraid of clowns, you are now. Uh, and, uh, but one of the things that was always funny to me when, when I would go and watch is these nets, right, that they would put up under the people walking the tightrope and the tra- trapeze people flying through the air. And of course, there was a pivotal moment where they <gasps> would remove the net under these people and see how they would do but the reality is that net was there for safety, right? It was there for security because if that person fell, that net would catch them. And what I'm trying to say about hope is that every one of us have a mental and an emotional net that we're relying upon. 
There's something underneath our feet that we're looking at and going, yeah, this is a little scary. Yeah, this is a little out of my comfort zone. But there's something underneath me that's going to catch me if I fall. And what Peter's saying is that it's not my 401k. It's not my house. It's not my job. It's not my family. It's not my abilities. Those aren't the nets that I'm trusting in to catch me if I fall. The only thing I'm trusting in as a net underneath me is Jesus. That's what Peter's saying. An alien is a person whose hope is resting in Christ and Christ alone. Now, here's the second question that's just as important. The first question is, okay, if that's what hope is, how do I know where my hope's placed? What keeps you for worry? Second question is equally important. How can I make sure that my hope is resting in Christ? So if you're tracking with me, you're going, okay, maybe my hope is resting in something other than Jesus. How do I get back on track? Look at verse 13. I'm glad you asked that question. Verse 13 says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now remember, inspiration-wise, theologically, as we interpret the Bible, anytime you see a word repeated more than once, it's repeated twice or more in one verse, that's the Holy Spirit's way of getting out a highlighter and saying, pay attention to this. Because here's what I believe Peter's saying. Peter is saying that the way that we guard our hope in Christ is by guarding our thought life. What I think about drives where my hope is resting. This is why Peter describes this kind of action as preparing our minds for action or being alert in our thinking. That phrase, preparing our minds for action, literally means rolling up the sleeves of our mind. And what it means is that I'm to have a discipline and a focus on paying attention to where my mind is going. Because where my thoughts go, according to Peter, so goes my hope. So here's the lie I think some of us may have bought into about humanity and about how we work. Some of us may think that our emotions and our thoughts are just kind of this breeze that blows through our lives that we have no control over. You know, I see certain things, certain things happen to me. I have certain thoughts that pop up in my head. I can't control it. It just happens and I'm totally powerless against my feelings and emotions and my thinking. And the biblical picture is actually not one of being tossed to and fro by the wind that's around us. The biblical picture is actually because you know Christ, you actually can be aware of what you're allowing your mind to think about and you can redirect those thoughts. Because what Peter's saying is this, part of what we've got to be about doing when it comes to guarding our thinking is actively replacing false hope with the real hope. The way that you and I fix our hope on Christ is by in our thought life replacing false hope with real hope so that when something happens in my life, and my mind immediately goes to some kind of false hope in my money, in my resume, or a relationship that I'm going to use to get out of this mess, that that's where my first line of defense comes, that I go, wait a minute, that's not my hope, and that I move the net away from my 401k or away from relationships, and I move the net back to being Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that not only can you do that, but that's what Peter's calling us to do. He's calling us to be aware of where our thoughts are going. I wish I could tell you that this is something you could just do once. I'm going to choose to place my hope in Christ. He's what's going to keep me from worry. But I have to tell you, that's not a one-time thing. Choosing to let my thoughts be focused on Christ is a daily activity. So here's the point. 
An alien is a person who guards their hope in Christ by guarding their thinking. So here's a question for you, just as we live this out together in application. Are you consciously aware of your thought life today? If we were to hook your brain up to a machine that could show us all of your thoughts throughout the week and put them on the screen behind us, who would go first? Dane, you would go first? Great, buddy. We'll get you up here. Probably very few of us, right? Because sometimes our minds go to some pretty dark places. And what Peter's saying is actually what we have to have is an awareness of where our mind is going and an accountability to say, it's not okay for me just to let my mind wander and run in places that are sinful and evil. My thought life should be disciplined and guarded by replacing the lies that I might believe with the truth of God's word. First thing, if we're going to be who we are, if we're going to act like aliens and pilgrims, it starts with our thinking. Number two, Paul moves to talking about being who we are in our actions or in our conduct. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is classic New Testament ethics, okay? Ethics 101 in the New Testament oftentimes will say, here's what you need to stop doing. Now, here's what you need to start doing. And that's the formula here. Peter starts by saying, here's what you need to stop doing. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, what are passions? These are desires. These are longings that we have. And what Peter's saying is every one of us are born with longings for self rather than God. Every human being that enters this world enters hardwired with longings and desires to gratify my wants rather than God. Now, if some of you don't believe me, you can come to our house and you can hang out with one Paige Allison Plumley. For those of you that don't know, this is my nine-month-old daughter. She is the apple of my eye. I am over the moon for her. She's the first Plumley girl in our line in a hundred years. Okay? I think there's just about anything she could ask me for right now, and I would say yes. However, What we're seeing in our nine-month-old is her personality start to come out. Do you know what she's not doing? She's not in her personality saying, Mom and Dad, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to make your life easy, and I want you to sleep as much as possible throughout the evening. So I've decided I'm going to go to bed early and wake up late. Parents, how many of you experienced that reality with your children? None of us, maybe a few of you had some great sleeping babies, but for the most part, children come into this world thinking their whole lives revolve around them. Parents of teenagers, this doesn't go away, right? Some of our teenage children think their whole lives revolve around them. And so what we have to say is actually these desires that you have aren't just cute, although sometimes it's hard not to laugh when they say things or do things when they're real little. But actually, it's not cute. What Peter's saying is these desires actually come from this hardwiring problem we have called sin. The specific word he uses here to describe this sickness is ignorance. Did you notice that in verse 14? 
is the passions of your former ignorance. The reason he says they're ignorant is because he's emphasizing the fact that these desires for self are birthed out of deception. You see, what Paige doesn't understand is that she's really not the main character of the universe. Parents, what we've got to be doing with our children is helping them understand they're not the center of the world. It doesn't revolve around them because actually God's the main character. And part of the reason we're helping people understand that is because when they tap into those passions and desires, what they're actually tapping into, a deception that tries to dethrone God in their lives. I don't have time to really go here this morning, but I just want to just a little, little message within a message really quick. This is one of the great lies being perpetuated in our culture today. One of the greatest lies, this is especially important for those of you that are younger, the millennials in the room, one of the greatest lies is that if you feel a certain way, you should do it. If you feel a certain way about sex and attraction, if you feel a certain way about gender, to not do those things and how you feel is to deny yourself in a way that would hurt you. And what we want to say is actually following your feelings is the worst thing you could ever do. Your feelings are a lousy compass and GPS, according to Peter, because what they lead you to think is that you're God when you're not. The cultural narrative of, if I feel a certain way, I should do it, is birthed in deception and ignorance. And this is why Peter says, don't live your life according to how you feel in the moment or how you feel in a situation. Instead, what should you start doing? Verse 15, but as God who called you is holy, you be holy in your conduct. Peter says we're to replace the authority that we find in our feelings with God's authority. And that when we make that shift, what our lives are to be lived like is people that are holy and set apart. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be perfect or pure or set apart. Now, lest lest we think Peter's trying to tell us to do something that's impossible, we need to remember the theological foundation behind what Peter's saying. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you know Christ as Savior and Lord... God has forgiven you by his grace of past, present, and future sins, totally and completely. You are the beloved. He loves you, cares for you. But the reality is, while that's your position before Christ, who you are as a holy person hasn't come out necessarily into your actions yet. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you became a Christian, you still struggle with sin. Why is that? It's because though you've been changed positionally before God and how he sees you, what's happened in you is a process has started in which that reality of holiness begins to come out in your actions. And what Peter's saying is you and I are meant to live a life cultivating holiness. We're to live a life putting sin to death rejecting how we feel about something being our final authority and replacing it with obedience and truth. Think of it this way. Think of um, an athlete that's incredibly talented, but undisciplined. You ever seen somebody like that? They just are freakishly talented. They've got innate gifts and abilities athletically. But the problem is until someone comes along through discipline, through training, through coaching, through teaching them the fundamentals of the sport they're playing, they're never going to accomplish what they could otherwise without that training. Because even though they're insanely talented, if they don't learn how to play the game that they're trying to play, they'll never realize their full potential, okay? In the same way, you and I have been given an innate holiness that's totally complete, perfect. 
But unless you and I spend our lives trying to cultivate that through killing sin and living for righteousness, we're never going to see those kind of things come out. Which is why Philippians 2.12, some of you may be familiar with that verse, says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What that means is that we're supposed to be killing sin and cultivating righteousness. So what, Paul's, what, excuse me, what Peter's saying is, you and I are called to be this people set apart, pure and different. Here's the point. Aliens strive for holiness, not just because God says so, but because it's good for us. Let me say that again. The point that Peter's making is that holiness is not just right. Peter wants us to understand that holiness is actually good. Let me tell you why I'm taking the time to talk about this. I think it's very easy, especially in 2016, to begin to view God's commandments, especially about things like sexuality and gender, as antiquated or restrictive. It's very easy to to see the way God tells us to live as uh, embarrassing even for some people. What we have to be is the people that say, actually, God's commands aren't embarrassing, they're not restrictive, they're not overly burdensome. They may look challenging at times, but actually what God's commands are is they're actually beautiful and there's actually a blessing associated with obedience to them. Why is that? Because God's commands are rooted in his role as creator. And when God calls us to do something, he's tapping us back into what we were designed to do in the first place. So imagine for a moment if I was um, uh, someone who made rocking chairs. Now, I, I will tell you quickly, if, if I ever made a rocking chair, you should never sit in it, okay? Because you would get hurt quickly. But, but, but for a moment, just stretch your imagination with me that I, I'm designing rocking chairs. And I spend lots of time making them. And, and their design and their uh, form is for people to sit down and have a relaxing ride, right? They're, they're going back and forth, and there's some kind of relaxing feeling that's associated with that. It would be bizarre if somebody walked up to a rocking chair and said, you know, I think this chair would actually serve much better as a writing utensil. I think what we really should do is use this as a pencil. And so if you walked up and somebody hoisted a rocking chair and lifted it and started using it to write on a piece of paper, it would look bizarre, right? It would look odd. Now, why would it be so odd? It would be bizarre and odd because you would watch somebody use this chair not for its design purpose. You're watching somebody try to use this for something it was never designed to do in the first place. Now, here's what happens with God's commands. God's commands are designed to show us what it looks like to do the purpose for which we were designed The reason God's commands are good and are a blessing to us is they tap us into what we were made to do. When we leave God's commands or when we begin to view them as restrictive or embarrassing or antiquated, we try to use a rocking chair like a pencil. This is really important because the more our convictions and positions on things like sexuality and gender come into conflict with the greater culture around us, we have to be ready to explain why. So it's not enough to say to someone, it doesn't matter 
that you feel attracted to people of the same sex. doesn't matter if you're confused about your gender and you don't know if you're a boy or a girl. This is what God said and just shut up and do it. It will not do in 2016 to just bang our, head on the t- bang our fists on the table and say, this is what God says, that's the end of it. It's true. God's truth is our authority. But what we have to do is we have to come back and say, yes, this is what God says. Let me tell you why. Had this conversation with somebody just this week that disagreed where the church is on sexuality and gender. I said, understand this. God's plan for complementarity between men and women in sex and in gender and in marriage is designed not to restrict you, but to protect you. It's actually made for your good. So that if you leave this design, if you leave what God has made for you, you invite harm in your life because you're trying to use a rocking chair like a pencil. We have to be ready to put forward a biblical vision of sexuality and gender and marriage that goes beyond just sound bites, that goes beyond just trite phrases or memes that we post on Facebook. We have to get deeper into saying, actually, the reason this is good for you is it's tying you into what God made you for in the first place. So here's a question by way of application. Are there parts of God's commands today that you and I see as burdensome rather than a blessing? Are there there things that God has called us to do in his word that maybe, if we're honest, we're, we're just a tad embarrassed by rather than seeing them for what they are as beautiful? So for those of you that are single in the room, It's very easy to view God's word on sexuality and relationships as antiquated or burdensome. Do you realize that God calling you to wait on sex within marriage, God calling you to set the bar high for a relationship is actually not to hurt you or to keep you from having a meaningful relationship, but it's actually there to protect you and it's good and that when you follow it, there's a blessing Why is there a blessing? Because you're doing what you're made to do. When you don't do that, you invite harm in your life. Maybe for some of us, it's not relationships. Maybe it's the way we talk. Some of us may uh, find humor that's inappropriate or things that we know we shouldn't talk about fascinating. Do we recognize that our language should be seasoned with salt in such a way that it encourages, it, it edifies people, and that sometimes it's better to listen rather than to speak? Do we see that as burdensome or as actually for our good? I know another area that I I struggle with personally is bitterness. Are some of us this morning holding on to bitterness despite what God's word says about it because it makes us feel good? Are we holding on to bitterness and worry because it makes us feel like we're in control? Which, by the way, can I just tell you that? You know what bitterness and worry is behind it? It's a desire to control the situation. Because I think by worrying about it or by being bitter towards somebody, I'm somehow controlling it. The reality is what you and I need to recognize is God's command to let go of bitterness and embrace a spirit of grace and forgiveness is not there to hurt us. It's actually there for our good because it ties us into the purpose for which we were made. God calls you and I to be aliens in our actions and part of that, the way that manifests itself is in holiness and a desire for that. Number three, and finally, 
God calls us to be who we are in our hearts or in our emotions. Look at verse 17. Peter says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. The key phrase there is to conduct ourselves with fear. Peter is saying at an emotional level, at the level of our hearts, that we are to hold a fear for God. Now, it's important to recognize this is not talking about being afraid of God as much as it is talking about a reverent sense of awe for God. So when I was growing up, I was growing up in the late 90s in high school, uh, there was this basketball player named Michael Jordan. Anybody remember Michael Jordan? I had someone after the first server stop me and say, I think LeBron's a little better. We can talk more about that later. But in my day, Michael Jordan was the living in. Every game that guy played, I tried to watch. Uh, I was just really dialed into what he was doing. The three championships before, his retirement into baseball, which was a mistake, and then the three championships after. I watched all of that. Loved every minute of it. And so I would oftentimes come into school on Monday morning and say, man, what Michael Jordan did this past weekend was awesome. One of my teachers who was a Christian, he would say, you know, Spencer, I agree. That guy's pretty incredible. Six championships, phenomenal. But, you know, I don't know that that word really captures what it's trying to get at when you appropriate it to somebody taking a round ball and putting it into an iron hoop. He said, you know, probably the word awesome, just consider the Spencer, should be reserved for God and God alone. And after a year of talking with him about that, he actually convinced me that I probably should use the word awesome only for God. Because while I I see things incredible in athletics or politics or economy or or people's uh, intelligence and what they have to offer, the reality is the only really awesome thing in this world is that the Creator loves me. That the God who made everything that I see with just his words, that God cares about me, has pursued me, is pursuing me now, and cares for me. That's really the only thing that's awesome. And so what Peter's saying is we're to live with that kind of perspective. We're to live with this kind of awe and respect and reverence for God and who he is. Three quick reasons he gives for that. Number one, he says God is the judge who judges impartially. Look at verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. God is a judge who's not swayed by your family or your money or what you've done. God judges us all based on his holiness and all of us come up short because of our sin. Secondly, second reason why we live with this kind of awe is because he's ransomed us with the blood of Christ. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Each of us, because we fall short of God's standard of perfection because of our sin, deserve a penalty. And what Peter is saying is the best news you're going to hear in your life. Because what Peter's saying is, though I deserve a penalty, Jesus Christ took that penalty for me. Jesus Christ, his blood was shed because he was taking the punishment that you and I should have gotten. And he compares this Jesus to his blood being so precious that it's more valuable than gold. And it talks about Jesus being a perfect spotless lamb. Peter oftentimes throughout this book is going to make allusion to the Old Testament. And this is one of those moments because he's talking about the fact that in the Old Testament, there was a lamb that was sacrificed in place of 
the people. It was representative. It was pointing forward to Christ. Last night in the Plumlee household, we were doing our evening Bible reading with the boys. Paige is already in bed. Shelly and I are there. And we've come to the story in our um, journey through the Bible of the Exodus. The people of God are leaving Egypt and they're coming to the promised land. But the only way they leave Egypt is through ten terrible plagues that God brings on the nation of Egypt. One of the plagues you'll remember was the final plague that was the most horrific. And Seth, my firstborn, who's six going on seven, has become keenly aware of what that, that final curse and plague really means. You'll remember that God had told Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said no. And he said, I'm going to take the life of every firstborn male in Egypt. And every time we get to that story, my son, his eyes begin to well up with tears because he's our firstborn. And last night he looked at me and dad, he said, Daddy, does, does that mean I would have died? I said, yeah, Seth, that's what that means. Noah, his brother, who likes to do everything that Seth does, goes, me too, Daddy. Me too. I want to die too. I said, no, Noah, this is just the firstborn. Just the firstborn. And I said, Seth, but but there was a way out for the people of God. Do you remember the way out for them so that the firstborn wouldn't die? And Seth said, yes, a lamb had to be killed in place of the firstborn. That blood had to be put on the doorpost. And so, of course, as you turn the page in that, that little picture Bible, there it is, the blood's on the doorpost. And what it points to is the fact that that death angel passed over those homes where they had said, we see the seriousness of our sin, we need a Savior. They were trusting in that coming promise of Christ. What this is saying is in the same way that that lamb made a way out for the firstborn male, Jesus Christ has made a way out for all of us. That's the best news you're ever going to hear. That though every one of us deserve penalty and pain and punishment, God takes all of that and pours it on his son instead of you and me. And my son Seth is beginning to get that. He's not there yet, but he's beginning to get that. Thirdly, thirdly and finally, the reason we live in awe is because this plan was put together in eternity past. Look at verse 20 in closing. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We are blown away. We live in awe of God because this plan that he put together was something that was there before the world even began. Consider this, church. God put a plan to get you, to save you together before time even existed. That's how much God loves you. Why should I live more in awe of God than of Michael Jordan? It's because he's this God who's perfect in every way, yet ransomed me with his son with a plan that started before time began. What does this mean? Aliens are living people, are people living impressed by the grace of God. What is an alien? An alien's a pilgrim, a person not destined for this place, but it's somebody who acts like who they are in their thinking, in their actions, and in their heart. Would you please pray with me, church?